children of the good, good father. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in Luke 22. I will be in a lot of different places, but that's where we're going to wind up, and the verses will be on the screen, as always. All right. Um, so a couple of years ago, uh, Jill and I attended a fundraiser at New Hope Counseling uh, for, for New Hope Counseling. Uh, that's a different thing for to tell you about our counseling. Uh, so uh, the, we actually hosted, the, the church hosted it. It was right here at Peninsula Grace. And one of the auction items was a six-course feast uh, brought to you by world-famous chef Dan Gerald. Uh, this was a hotly coveted ticket. And the bidding was quickly moving into the quadruple uh, digits, which is well out of Jill and I's price range. Uh, you all tithe very well, uh, but we were looking more at the, like, the one-course meal from Pita Pit. That was the one we were going to bid on, uh, hopefully starting at about a dollar or two. Uh, there, there were three couples that went in on the feast together to be able to afford it. Um, but a couple months later, when it was about to, to occur, I got a call from Keith Hamilton, who was one of the winners and is far richer than I am. Uh, he, he called and said, hey, one of the couples had to, had to bow out. Something came up, and they rejected the invitation. And so uh, we would like to invite our pastor and his couple and his, and his, his, his wife. There we go. Oh, buddy, we do need counseling. All right, so to join the other two couples for this six-course feast. And uh, now, Jill and I had no biz business eating at this fancy feast, right? We certainly could not have afforded it. We couldn't even pronounce half of the things that were on the list with au jus, and there was a, a steak sous vide, and I didn't even know what a steak sous vide was. It's like a, basically a steak in an aquarium. I'd never seen this before. It was a bizarre experience, right? We had no business being there, but I'll tell you what, we were grateful, and we were hungry, right? So we came uh, to a meal for my personal favorite price, free 99 and we delighted in eating. We had a hunger, a deep-seated hunger. And all of us, each of us in this room, have a deep-seated hunger uh, that each of us, we, we desire something more. We, we, maybe it's for you a better marriage, or maybe it's a marriage. Uh, maybe for you it's a better relationship with somebody in your family. Maybe it's a, a better job, more money, more time that would be available to you, a, a better body, maybe better habits, fighting addictions, or or um, something along those lines, freedom from something that's been done to you, a pain, a suffering, a death of a loved one. Uh, we all desire this, a, a good life, a better life. But we find often, like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, that nothing under the sun, nothing here on this earth in itself will satisfy that hunger, which is why we have what uh, James K. Smith, he kind of took a modern twist or a rewording of Augustine's favorite, uh, famous saying. He said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our gut will rumble until we feed on you. There's a hunger deep within us. That only God himself can satisfy with himself. And in Isaiah chapter 25, the prophet has just announced worldwide destruction that's coming. But there is hope on the other side of that destruction. And he invites people to a feast. He says in verse 6, In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine, I'm just telling you what the Bible says, and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and his people. Peace on earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, this is our God. 
the one that we've come to feast upon. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation that he brings. For the Lord's hand of blessing will rest on Jerusalem. And until then, our bellies will continue to rumble until we get to such a feast. So how do we get there? Well, we've been walking through the story that leads us to such a feast in, called the Unfolding Promise. We've been looking at uh, these promises that God made with man. We're on the last of the covenants, the final covenant, the new covenant that we talked about last week. And we'll, we'll sew things up with that new covenant uh, next week as we close out this, this series. And we've been looking, we've been on a search and rescue mission, right, since the beginning. That we saw that God created the world and he's looking for humans that will truly represent his glory here on earth in the way that they live. But Adam and Eve took a hard left turn disobeying God and ever since then we've been looking forward to this rescuer that he was going to bring. That he promised them in the garden there's going to be one who comes and crushes the head of the snake. Sin and death will be defeated by this one. That this one will come and be just like that ark with Noah to save us through the flood waters of judgment to that rainbow promise. And then it will come, he said, from the line of Abraham. It will be from the people of Israel. And through the nation of Israel, this rescuer will be a blessing, a rescuer for all nations. And this one will become the one who who walks in my ways, who obeys my law, perfectly modeled in the way that he loves God and loves others. And this one will be a king from the tribe of Judah, from the line of King David. And this morning in our story, we come to find that the Messiah is here. In this part of the story, the king and his kingdom comes, and his name is Jesus. He comes offering a kingdom and rescue from darkness into that kingdom. And now on the biggest stage, we're going to see Jesus face the same test that Adam and Eve faced in the garden, that that Abraham faced on the mountain with Isaac, that the people of Israel faced on Mount Sinai. And here he is in the Mount of Olives, and he has a choice. Will I trust and obey my God unto death on a cross? Or will I choose self-preservation, listen to the serpent's lies, and save my own life at the expense of the lives of the world? But first, he wants to sit down at a meal. And he invites his closest followers to his side to eat with him. He actually invites these disciples to feast with him and to feast on him. And in Luke 22, Jesus says, when the hour, when Luke says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus offers an invitation to this new covenant, the final covenant. And if you were with us last week in Jeremiah 31, we saw the prophet speak about this new covenant that was coming as Jesus fulfills it here. He says that your sins, the sins of the world will be forgiven forever and that God will actually give people in this new covenant a new heart, a heart that desires to obey God. He said, I'm going to put in Ezekiel, he said, I'm going to put my very spirit in you, myself, will enter you. And so we see this morning, we're going to, last week we saw the promise, the the forgiveness of sins and and the spirit of God being placed in us. This week we're going to ask two questions. Who is in this covenant who is in this covenant? And then number two, what is the sign that he gives, a sign for us today? So first of all, who is in this covenant? Who are the members of God's new covenant through Jesus? Who is he inviting to the table? Well, last week, in the context of Jeremiah 31, when he first prophesies this new covenant, listen to the language. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant, remember he's introducing a new policy, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, 
So at this point, the, kingdoms have been, the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribes of Judah. And he says, I'm going to bring you back together as one people. So we see this as being offered to the people who were born physically of Abraham, but is this new covenant just offered to the nation of Israel? If so, then what are we doing here this morning? Well, we know that Jesus came born of a woman, right? Born, uh, born a Jew. He was the Messiah that the Jewish people had been waiting for to rescue them and to restore them as a people. But th- they had to accept him and believe his claims as king. Did they receive, did, the, did the nation of Israel receive their king? John 1 tells us the answer. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. Or maybe you've heard it said he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. Now, it's important to understand This is not saying that every single individual Jew rejected Jesus. Many of his, who were his followers, right? The disciples, they are are Jewish people who believed Jesus' claims and were following him. But the majority of the people of Israel, including the majority, the vast majority of the leadership, rejected him. In fact, they said that he was blaspheming, which is meaning he was claiming to be God when he wasn't. And so that's why they crucified him, that he would dare make such a claim. How many of you have seen uh, Princess Bride? Princess Bride and the Fan. This is, I remember back in the day when Blockbuster was a thing. You could go rent these like rectangular objects and then put them into this bigger rectangular object and watch a movie and then be kind and rewind, right? So in those days, we had this movie called Princess Bride. And I love, one of my favorite scenes is the Battle of the Wits. And Vicini, the little bald guy here on the screen, he's trying to guess which of the two glasses that Wesley has, has poisoned. So he waxes eloquent for a few minutes and then he distracts Wesley, switches the glasses when he wasn't looking. Then he has each of them drink from the glass in front of them. And Wesley says, you were wrong. And Vicini says, you only think that I was wrong, right? I switched the glasses when you weren't looking. Because everybody knows that you never go in against the Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> Kaboom. And it does. So I'm going to preach eternal forgiveness of sins, and you all clap at my Vicini impersonation. <laughs> Have mercy on us, dear Father. So we know Vicini, he thought, he claimed to know what he was doing. He thought he knew where the poison was in the glass. He thought he was in control of the scene, but he was an idiot. He was wrong, he was arrogant, and he did. But similarly, God is not Vicini. God is not an idiot. Right? There's your big takeaway for the day. Justin said, God's not an idiot. Got it. God knew that, G- that the Jews would reject Jesus and kill him. This did not throw God off. He knew, unlike Vicini, God knew what was coming. And this was actually all part of his sovereign plan. Because it was through the very death of Jesus that life was made available through his shed blood and resurrection that all people of the world could be saved. Not just those who killed him, not just the Jewish nation, but remember what he promised to Abraham. Through your nation, I'll bless all nations. And it was through the nation of Israel killing Jesus that he became the rescuer of all the world. And Romans 11 says this explicitly. Their rejection, the Jews' rejection of Jesus and killing him, meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world. It was through their very shedding of his blood that he was able to save those from every tongue and tribe and nation. And just like Jill and I got invited to that fancy dinner, a party, because because somebody else rejected the invitation. It was the rejection of Jesus from the Jews that brought salvation to the whole world. 
You remember the story in Matthew 22, there's this parable of a wedding banquet. And uh, there's a story where um, a king is putting on a banquet for his son who's getting married. So the king sends out servants to summon the guests. The, re- the guests not only reject the invitation, but they kill the servants. Right? That could have been just a regretfully declined thing and we would have been good, right? Message received, but they kill him instead. So the king, in retribution, kills those people and burns down their city. This really sets the stage for a lovely wedding, doesn't it, right? So the king then sends out the rest of his servants that haven't been killed to find, he says, go find everybody you can. The beggars, the prostitutes, the crippled, everybody. Democrats, I don't care who you, okay, I'm going to get in there. <laughs> notes, Justin, notes. But, but it, ends, it ends on this ominous note. One guy shows up and is like, let's party! And the king says, get him out of here. Because he does not have the right wedding clothes. And in the culture, the wedding clothes actually would have been provided by the king. He says, he didn't come in the clothes that I provided for him. He's not allowed in. Now, through Jesus' death and his rescue, um, the rescue from sin and death is available to everybody on the planet. But not everybody is saved, right? You go back to John 1. He said, he came to his own people, and, and even they rejected him. So Israel was invited to the party, but they rejected the invite. They killed God's servant. And that is what opened the door to everyone being invited, but only for those who came with the right wedding clothes. And who are those? What what does right clothing look like to come to this banquet? Well, he says in the next verse, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God, whose the Son sets free. He is free indeed. They are reborn, not with a physical birth coming from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. He says this new birth will not just be a, will not be a physical, but a spiritual birth. And this is for those who believe. And listen, for the Jew and the Gentile. Anybody who believes now. God is creating a new people for himself through this new birth. And who is in? All who believe and accept who Jesus claimed to be. So we mentioned that in God's covenant with Israel, you were essentially born into the covenant family. Eight days later, and boom, welcome. There you are. The sign was circumcision at eight days old. Now, this eight-day-old was not making a profession of faith, right? They weren't saying, I believe in Yahweh, right? They're not able to claim that for themselves. Now, circumcision, we know, didn't save anybody in Israel, that you could grow up and totally believe that you did not... You did not believe who Yahweh was. You did not walk in his ways. In fact, this happened in Israel all the time. And as a result, you had a people within God's covenant community where some believed and knew the Lord and some did not believe or know the Lord. But in this new covenant community, he says it will not be that way. In Jeremiah 31, if you saw this last week and you were like, that's a weird thing, let's go back to this. Jeremiah 31, he says, they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. So what does this mean? He's talking about this new covenant community in the new covenant, right? This doesn't mean that nobody in the covenant needs teaching, right, which is good because that's job security for me, but rather that everyone will know the Lord, meaning they will have a relationship with the Lord. The Hebrew no was not just understanding that there is a God. It was believing in that God, trusting in that God. In other words, in the new covenant, all the members of that covenant community will be believers, so we become members of God's family. Remember it said not by being physically born into it, like in the old covenant, but, but through, it, is, for, so it doesn't matter if, if my parents were Christians, that doesn't automatically mean that I am. 
It's not through physical birth, but through spiritual birth. That It's through faith in Jesus and a circumcised heart where he removes sin, not the removal of flesh. Not everyone in Israel was saved. Only those who looked forward by faith to the Messiah. But in God's new covenant family, you enter by faith, which means that there is no longer a situation where you have to teach someone who's legitimately in the new covenant, not just in the church building, but legitimately in the new covenant family, you don't have to teach them to know the Lord because all of the members already know him as Savior. The sign that, that Jesus gave to his followers was baptism. Matthew 28. I'll have all authority now in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this symbolizes a passing from the waters of death into life. It symbolizes this moving through the birth canal into a new birth that only God could give into his covenant family. Now please hear me loud and clear. Baptism, the water baptism in and of itself saves nobody. Jesus saves us. Just like circumcision saved nobody. But the water baptism was an indicator that I had placed my faith in Jesus and I'm following him. Remember, we said last week, the reason we obey is because of who we now are, because we believe. Jesus said, do it. So we take him at his word and we obey his commands. And this is why at Peninsula Grace, we practice baptism for believers, for those who believe in Jesus's claims. Now, not everybody agrees on this, and there are some churches and individuals who practice infant baptism, which to me runs into some problems. If you baptize that child, and then they grow up to not believe in the Lord, did they have salvation? Did they lose it? How does that work? Now, we say that with grace and humility. This is my best understanding of the book. This is how we as a, practice, a church practice these things in our fellowship. But the bigger question is, who can be in this covenant community? Well, Jesus makes this clear in Mark chapter 1. When he came to present this kingdom, he says, the time promised by God has come at last, he announces. The kingdom of God is near, which meant it's at hand, it's in front of you. I'm the kingdom. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Repent and believe, he says. Now, talk for a moment here. There are some of us, I believe, I would say it this way, there are some of us in this room, in a room this size, I would wager, I don't know any, anybody's true heart standing before God, but I would wager in a room this size, there are some who think that they are rescued and they're not. And I say this because I love you and what I care about most is your eternity. That it doesn't matter if your parents went to church. It doesn't matter if your parents bring you to church. It doesn't matter if you've been coming to church ever since you were little. That's not the entrance exam into the kingdom of God. That does not bring us new birth. What did Jesus say brings us new birth? Repenting of our sins and believing in Jesus. The word repent means to turn, to change one's mind, to say I was a sinner who was not worshiping God rightly but rebelling against him, and to turn and say I believe who Jesus claims that he is, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. Rescue is available for all who will repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. So the question for you, that you this morning, not for your parents, not for those who are sitting next to you, but have you repented of your sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he claims to be? But I also want to say there are some of us in this room who believe that we cannot be rescued and we can be rescued. The Apostle Paul, he said, man, in 1 Timothy, he says, I am the chief of sinners. That Paul, he, Paul had been a part of persecuting the church, those who claimed to follow Jesus. In fact, he was even aiding and abetting, at least, those who were murdering people like Stephen in Acts 7. But when Jesus got a hold of his heart and changed him, 
He says, now I'm following the way of Jesus. And if Jesus could save me, I mean, probably nobody in here has killed a Christian. Raise your hand if you killed a Christian. I just want to take a quick note of that, and we'll get our first responders ministry on that one. Um, so we, no, we know that then it's, he's saying, if I could be saved, there's nobody in this room that could out the grace of God. That everybody is invited to the party. In the words of the ancient philosophers, the Backstreet Boys, say, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've been, right? As long as you repent and believe in Jesus. That's the newer version. You guys probably haven't heard that one, but it's a lot more theologically accurate. Um, There's a place at the table for each of us here, every single one of us here. But how? Listen, you and I cannot just waltz into the dining room and plop down at God's holy dining room table and say, where's the beef at? We have no business walking there on our own, in our own clothes. He will chuck us out. So how did Jesus make a way? Well, just like Jill and I ate at that six-course meal that we could not afford, we do not deserve to be at this table with the king's son. So how do we get an invite? Let's look at what Jesus did. We see this clearly in the sign that he offers of this covenant, the sign of the covenant. So we said that baptism is the sign of those entering into the new covenant family. Again, we are saved by grace through faith as everybody who ever has been saved has been. The baptism is a sign to say, I am with you team Jesus. I'm following him with his people. And for those of us that are in the family, it's the bread and the cup. The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the communion, uh, the bread and the cup this is the sign of those who are in this covenant family, remembering that Jesus is now in us. This is where you and I arrive on the scene in this story of the unfolding promise. The disciples today are in this new covenant. And so for this last point, we're actually going to take the bread and the cup together. There are, are tables behind each of these four sections. And in a moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dismiss you to grab some elements and then come back and we'll finish up this last portion of the sermon by talking about the bread and the cup and then taking it. So if you have repented of your sin and believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we would invite you in a moment to receive those elements. If you have not repented of your sin and believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I mean, we are glad you are here. We are glad you are here with us. We do not bar anybody from the doors into the church. We're actually glad that you're here, but we would ask you uh, to consider. We would ask you to consider to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, to believe the claims that the Bible is making uh, that Jesus has, has claimed to be. But Scripture compels us to say that we would ask that you would pass on these elements. It's for the, it's a family meal. So we, w- we want you to stay here and be with us and hear the good news but for the believers in Jesus to receive these elements. So what we're going to do is Bridget's going to play some music, and then there are four sections here. Uh, We're just going to start in the first row and move our way. So if you're in the front row of your section, you're going to start out, go to your left, go to the back. There's this little package. It's a a two-for-one, a little little, uh, piece of bread on the top, and then a communion cup below it. You'll just take that and then come back to your seat. So go that way and then come back this way and come back to your seat. Then we'll talk a little bit more and take the bread and the cup together. So uh, first rows, you guys can go ahead and start.
So uh, Jesus gives this new covenant to his disciples in the context of a meal, but this isn't just any, any meal. This is the Passover. In fact, in Luke 22, six times it mentions this is the Passover. It's a Passover time. They're eating at the Passover. Luke, not so subtly, is saying, hey, connect the dots with the Passover. The Passover was a supper that the Jewish people had been feasting on for centuries. They were remembering uh, and rehearsing the story of God's faithfulness in their past, saving them from Egypt and looking forward with hopeful anticipation that that Messiah would come again in the future to release them from sin and death. And now Jesus is making the audacious claim, the Messiah is here, let's eat. And he offers them these two elements, and you have them in your hands. So we'll talk about the bread first. He says in Luke 22, in verse 19, he says he took the bread and he gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to them. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, first, we want to say, remember this time in the new covenant, uh, he says, I'm going to cleanse you from the inside out, that, that I am going to circ- circumcise not your flesh, but your, your heart, remove sin from your heart and put my holy spirit in you. But how does he do that? Well, symbolically here, it's that we consume Jesus, which is a very off-putting analogy even to this day, but much more so in a community that was not allowed to eat, eat blood, have any, even eat meat with blood in it. And many people in John 6 were turned away from Jesus' teaching about being the bread of life and to be eaten by them. And so we see this, this picture, and they were eating, they're not, you know, don't picture Odie's delicious fluffy bread. This was this flat, unleavened bread. Part of that was because they wanted to be able to leave quickly out of Egypt, but the symbol went even deeper than that. The, the, the idea of leaven in the bread symbolized sin in, in the dough, and so it was saying that unleavened bread was bread that was holy. And, and what we see is when we take the bread symbolically, when we consume Jesus, we are showing by faith that we have received Jesus and his Holy Spirit into our lives, into our bodies. You've probably heard the expression, you are what you eat. You are what you eat. So if I had my way, I would eat nothing but cereal, pizza, and steak, and a five-pound bag of Sour Patch Kids every single day until I died, which would be about three days, right? <laughs> I become what I've eaten. And now as I get older, and I, and I, and I got to watch, I'm doing some new calorie count thing, I'm portion controlling, I'm eating less carbs and sugars, I feel great. I look fantastic. <laughs> Just want to, not the clap that we got for the Vicini quote. Okay, that's cool. Uh, so, but we, what we eat determines our lives. Will it determine if we will live a healthy life or an unhealthy life, or is at least one of the major factors, right? And the same is true with Jesus. Two important truths I want to draw out of consuming Jesus in this way. Uh, first of all, there's an intimacy with Jesus that he's inviting us to. Is he invites us to the table. The table is a place of intimacy and closeness. I remember when Jill and I first, I flew down to California to meet her for the first time. We'd been dating online for a couple months. But it was actually sitting down at Old Town Pizza, the restaurant just a couple of miles down the road from her, and looking into her eyes. And it felt like for the first time I was truly falling in love with this girl. Either that or the pizza was just really, really good. I can't remember what the feeling was, but it was good feeling. Uh, but I, it's, it's this closeness, right? this intimacy that we have. Have over a meal, and this is what Jesus is inviting us to, because we said our gut rumbles, we long for a satisfaction, and, and listen, everything else in our lives takes us down the road of the five-pound bag of Sour Patch Kids. It may taste good for a moment. It might provide some immediate gratification, but it ultimately le- leads to a dead end of disappointment and destruction. He says there's only one that can satisfy the rumbling in our guts, and it is union with Jesus himself. But it's not just intimacy with Jesus that he's offering here. Do you notice the, the picture? He's taking one bread, piece of bread, and he's breaking it 
symbolizing his body being broken, and then he's passing to each of his disciples from that same bread. There's also an intimacy that we can have with each other, we can only have with each other through Jesus. In Ephesians 2, he said he came, and in his body, he tore down the wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, that there can be peace at his table, not just with God, but with each other. The only way we're going to see peace on earth is through the broken body of Jesus, intimacy with him and others. But then there's also an imitation of Jesus. We are what we eat. And so if we receive Jesus by faith, if we now have Christ in us, the hope of glory, what are our lives going to start to look like? They're going to look like Jesus. We become what we behold. So as we have intimacy with Jesus, we begin to imitate our Father through Jesus. And this means... This will change the way you live. This will change Jesus in us. We will, the true believer, will start to, to look at other people differently, respond to other people differently, spend their time differently. We will do what Jesus would do if he was us because he is living in us. So this meal offers an intimacy with him and imitation of him. And so therefore, if you, take, if, you, if you take your bread with me, it says, this is my body, which is given for you for intimacy with Jesus and an imitation of Jesus through the taking of this bread. He says, do this. Very subtle, quiet noise, isn't it? Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the element of bread together. And then he moves to the cup. And he says in verse 20, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the, and here's the phrase, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, there are two things that we see here with the blood. A, the blood covers. The blood covers. So the original Passover meal, they actually covered their doorposts with the blood of an innocent lamb so that the angel of death would pass over their house. The tenth plague was that each firstborn of the house would die. But as that angel passed over, those inside of the house covered with the blood of the lamb could have a feast, not fearing, but feasting. And the same is true for us. Jesus invites us to this meal that God's wrath passes over our sin. And in the meantime, we can feast with Jesus. Why? Because we are covered in the blood of the lamb. So when I inevitably blow it this week yet again, when I'm unkind, when I'm proud, when I'm jealous, when I'm greedy, when I'm impatient, God's not up there waiting with a lightning bolt to strike me. He sees me in Christ accepted and forgiven as though I was Jesus himself. Why? Because of what the new covenant promised. I will for forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. That Jesus' blood shed once and for all covered my sins forever. Amen. Not only did it to cover us, but the blood cleanses. The blood cleanses. This is more than just him deflecting God's wrath for us. How can a perfect Jesus enter our bodies, right? We're sinners. And, and a holy God cannot enter into a sinful man. We must be cleansed, right? We must be cleansed. In the, in the Old Testament, there was this picture 
on the altar in Jerusalem, in the temple, where the priest would shed the blood of an innocent animal on the altar. And that altar, uh, oxymoronically, the blood cleansed the altar's spot and, and made it the touch point of heaven and earth. God and man met at this altar. But he says, no longer is the meeting place going to be at this altar in Jerusalem. The New Testament says that we are his temple, that the meeting place between God and man is now us. Why? Because Jesus' blood cleansed us. Hebrews 2 says, 10 says, because of this, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. How can we do that? For our guilty consciences, the things which tell us we're sinners, right? We do wrong. They've been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. The moment that Jesus died, what happens? The temple's curtain split in two, symbolizing an entrance into God's presence, the holy of holies. How can a sinner go in there? We are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. It does not matter what you've done in your past, what you're doing in your present. It doesn't matter what's been done to you or is being done to you right now. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. In him, you are clean now and forever. That's what we do when we take this cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you, this blood that covers us, this blood that cleanses us. So if you'd prepare your cup. He says, do this. Take this cup. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. We know that even when we break our end of the deal, he will never break the end of his. But this cup, this supper, this bread and this cup is a shadow. It's actually not the real. Like, is anybody full now? You're like, okay, I don't need to go out to eat now. I had my meal, right? No, I would think not unless you're on a really weird calorie count. So we know that this is a shadow. The the Passover meal was a shadow of Jesus to come. The Last Supper was a shadow of the culmination that what we're doing right now points us forward to what is to come. And next week, in the grand crescendo, the climax of this story, we're going to gaze into the future of God's kingdom, what the good life, what our future forever life will look like for him. And Jesus gives a whisper of this in the meal. Notice what he says, verse 16, to the disciples. I tell you, I will not eat it again, this supper, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You and I have been invited to the supper table. And we're going to turn to the end of the the story next week and look at Revelation, the marriage supper of the slain lamb. That you and I have been invited, like Jill and I, not because we were able to afford it. We had no business being at the supper table. But for free 99 For nothing but the blood of Jesus, we've been invited with intimacy with Jesus, imitation of Jesus, because we have been covered by his blood, cleansed by his blood, and raised with him to a new forever life. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that Jesus Christ came to do for us what we could never do, to live the perfect life that we were incapable of living. Father, we know it's a beautiful and terrible thing the way that the gospel can both humble and exalt. Lord, there are some in this room today that have been thinking that they're fine on their own, that, that they've been able to keep, keep, do better than their neighbors, that they've been able to live a pretty good life, that they've attended church and haven't really hurt anybody. 
But Lord, we know that on our own merit, no one can stand, that we all are guilty. And it's only through repentance of our sins, seeing us the way that you see us, and then seeing Jesus the way that you see your son, that by faith in who he has claimed to be as God and Lord and Savior and the King forever, that we can enter into that family. So Father, I pray that you would humble those that need to be humbled and recognize Jesus is the only entry point into that. But Lord, some people today come very broken, very aware of their sin, how far they really have fallen. And Lord, they need you to come to lift up their chin, to look them in the eyes and say, my son's blood speaks a better word than anything you've done, anything that's been done to you. And in me, you are forgiven You are accepted. You are washed as white as the coming snow. Father, would your gospel humble those of us who need to be humbled, that it would exalt those who need to be exalted. And in one voice, we would praise the risen lamb and his blood that speaks a better word, that we would experience the peace that he offers with each other and with you and with this world that we would go in the name of Jesus, have have intimacy with him, to imitate him as we go out into our world, knowing that the blood covers and the blood cleanses. It's in the beautiful name of the innocent, sacrificial lamb, Jesus, that all God's people said.